continuing with our contemplation. Contemplation of the Dhamma, this lovely word that is vast, includes everything, can be translated as nature, the nature of things, what we normally call nature, like the trees, the rivers, the mountains, the animal kingdom. Yes, that's part of the Dhamma. That includes us. We're a part of the natural way of things. Not only includes form, but also consciousness is part of the way of things. It's part of this mysterious nature. And that within this Dhamma, there's a mysterious orderliness, a lawfulness. It's sometimes translated as law. When the Buddha was awakened as he was contemplating the Dhamma, the way things are, he realized that suffering arises because of certain conditions. He realized the chain of causation that led to suffering. He realized that grasping, wanting things to be the way they couldn't be, the way they weren't, caused suffering. Saw how that relinquishing, that letting go, led to peace. So the Dhamma includes the nature of the day and night, morning, midday, dusk. Includes the Dhamma of liking and not liking, pleasure and pain, feeling good, not feeling good, being alert. Being sort of fuzzy, being asleep, all these are dhammas that arise and cease within, there's also what's known as an unchanging dhamma, a timeless dhamma, a deathless dhamma, all part of this dhamma. So continuing our contemplation of the dhamma. Last night, uh, Tanisara spoke introduced the teaching on the five nirvaranas, or what's called the five hindrances. When they're not understood, not recognized for what they are, then they hinder us. Obstruct us. when we're under their sway, when we don't really understand these formations, these patterns, then the Buddha said it's like being in prison. We can't go freely. We're trapped. Or he said it's like being a slave. You can go, but you go because someone else tells you to go. Yes, boss. 
we're not also, we're bound, not free. Or he says, like being sick. Don't feel good, don't have the energy. We're afflicted. Or the fourth simile was like being in debt. We've lost our treasure. Our treasure's been given away. We don't have it anymore. Owe it to someone else. We don't, can't sense the abundance of our being. Or the final simile he gave was it's, it's like a being having a caravan with all our precious goods going through a dangerous territory that's dangerous in terms of bandits, in terms of a wild landscape. And so we're, we're frightened. We're in danger. We're endangered. And he describes the, the, the moments of when we're free from these hindrances. It's like being, you know, released from prison, freed from slavery. like getting well, coming out of a sickness, or paying off our debts, or arriving safely home from the journey. So we notice those moments when we're not afflicted by these hindrances. Someone was asking, well, well, does it, we just get rid of them? The problem with that way of talking is it, 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 it tends to just further misunderstanding the idea that it's just something you throw away. It can just lead to more aversion, which is the second hindrance, thinking you get rid of it just by pushing something away. This is not good. I don't want it. It's like that. It's a bit of a silly image, but it's an interesting image in a bathtub. If there's ripples in the tub and you don't like the ripples, you like the calmness and you try to pat them down. Every time you pat down a ripple, you create 20 more, 20 more, 20 more. So rather than, rather than getting rid of them, I would say transform, penetrate, understand. And little by little, they lose their power. Know them for what they are. To review, when we're under the sway of the hindrances, we're not able to compose ourselves and be fully with whatever we're doing. We're being hindered. These five are are not absolute categories. They're they're just giving one a sense of territory. We have all sorts of cocktails and mixtures and different things. And so it's not, they're not, there's no absolute separation here, but it just gives us a sense of reflecting on the different ways that consciousness can be misguided or fooled or, or shaped. First one, Denisra introduced kamachanda or sense desire. Being wanting, it's wanting, the wanting energy. We're not judging this as bad. If you just try to think, oh, we shouldn't have any of that and just kind of shut it down, 
we're not careful, we just shut down our whole life force. We don't get here on retreat unless there's some wanting. But when wanting is unconscious, we're just... As the Buddha says, when, when this desire is really unconscious, how did he put it? Not even if it rained gold coins would we have our fill of sense pleasures. We're not really conscious. We're always thinking. It's not quite right here. Yeah, it's over there. And then we're busy getting there. We don't really know how to appreciate even when we get there because we start to get a little restless or... And then... Oh, and then there's another horizon, another sight, another sound. Desire tells us, no, it's there. That's pulls us out. Desire never, rarely, encourages you to look at it. It's always concretizing, making real this object apart from us. It generates a sense of impoverishment. Poverty here, I don't have that, but if I, if I got that, connected with that, it's always leaning. Desire doesn't look at itself unless we start to question it. The Buddha never said that, uh, that there weren't blessings in desires. He never said that, you know, you know, when we fulfill a desire, that he never said that there wasn't a pleasure. He says there is that gratification. But have we noticed the, the fever of it, the, the, the wanting, and then there's the gratification, and because... Uh, I like ice cream. I'm working on it. I like the taste of ice cream. And there's certainly gratification. But Tanissa knows of some of my digestive difficulties over the years and this and that. And sometimes after I've had a big meal and she sees me getting ice cream, she'll say, Kitty Sorrow. <laughs> and I say, oh, it's just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> then I'll have my ice cream and she says I, I don't want to hear about your moaning and stomach aches and, but, the, but the fever and then the taste goes and then we, we want the taste again and is it wisdom? yes <laughs> It seems like wisdom. It seems like wisdom. And, uh, that capacity to see clearly gets colored. So there's some lo- lovely similes about the, the nature of these hindrances that the Buddha gave. 
Imagine a bowl of water mixed with colors, what the Buddha called lack. Colors, yellow, indigo, crimson, such that a man or a woman with good good eyesight examining the reflection or his or her face in it would not be able to know or see the face as it really is. So this water's been colored. In the same way, when one remains with awareness possessed by sensual desire, overcome by passion, one neither knows nor sees the escape as it has come to be from passion once it has arisen. One neither knows nor sees what is, one for, what is for one's own benefit or for the benefit of others or for the benefit of both. He said, desire is like having this water that's filled with color. You then can't really see your reflection in it. It distorts your vision. Yes, I need that. Then the Buddha gives an image for each of the hindrances, uh, aversion. Imagine a bowl of water heated on a fire, boiling and bubbling over such that a person with good eyesight examining the reflection of the face would not be able to see our face as it is. So aversion is this bubbling and boiling. Lethargy, sluggishness, that third hindrance. The simile is Imagine a bowl of water covered with algae and slime. It's covered with a, the surface has, is covered. Can't see clearly, can't see ourselves, can't know what's for our benefit or another benefit. Sometimes if we're totally locked into that. Anxiety, restlessness and anxiety. The fourth one, imagine a bowl of water ruffled by the wind. disturbed and covered with waves, such that a person with good eyesight examining the reflection of his face in it would not be able to know or see his face as it has come to be. In the same way, when one remains with awareness possessed, that's the key term, when our awareness is possessed by restlessness and anxiety, overcome with restlessness and anxiety, then one doesn't know any escape from that. One cannot see what is for our benefit or another benefit or both. Fifth hindrance, what's called doubt. And the image is, imagine a bowl of water stirred up. It's got mud in it. It's stirred up and left in the dark. such that a person with good eyesight examining the reflection of his face would not be able to know or see his face as it has come to be. But, you know, the Buddha goes on to talk about, you know, water that is not colored, that's not boiling, that's not windswept, that's not covered with slime, or water that 
was muddied and in the darks brought into the light and allowed to settle, then we can see our reflection, see clearly. It's not a question of getting rid of. If we just make them, oh, these are bad things, I've got to get rid of them, I'm afflicted, I'm afflicted, I don't want to be afflicted. And then we're not careful, then we just create more aversion or denial. We get good at pretending that it's not there. That's a big hindrance. Because we can, you know, sure that we're not angry. Everybody knows we're angry except us. So it's important to be honest. And the moment, the moment we acknowledge, sense that desire, gosh, beautiful, I mean, spring is here. What am I doing sitting in here crucifying myself? The walks in this area are famous. We can just feel that pull and then just notice that. A moment of noticing is different from being possessed, totally caught up in. We're noticing it. Once we start to notice something, it's already becoming different. As our teacher would say, then it becomes our teacher. Ajahn desire. Ajahn doubt. Ajahn restlessness. We can learn from that. And when it and notice that when we're contemplating Dhamma, notice the difference. Notice the difference between, oh gosh, wanting to be somewhere else and then just not liking it here. Gosh, everybody says zombies going around. Talking, talking, talking about the way things are, those kind of teachers up there. Why not just live? You know, kind of desire and aversion. And, and then think, oh gosh, I guess, well, just put, check all the ones off on me. I'm just all afflicted. <laughs> but I'm going to go out there and live. And, and, and so that's me, afflicted, this and that. But notice a moment of just contemplating Dhamma, that this is nature. Rather than me, with, oh, there's desire. Can we notice its pull, notice its fever? It's pulling us like a ghost, pulling us. An aversion, recoiling, pushing, pulling. The image Tanisha and I like to use a lot is it's, it's like uh, we've lived in South Africa for 15 years, and uh, when we first went to the game parks, it was into nature, into wilderness. And a ranger would, would take us out, and you're just walking, and, and the ranger, oh, great, look, there's the lion tracks. Great. <laughs> Let's go follow them. <laughs> but then, you know, we're walking along, then you see this kind of rhino. Like a pickup truck, it's so big. You know, just in a, in the mud. You know, talk about uh, just uh, half awake, half asleep. It's snoring as it's bubbling in the mud. 
Just this lovely smile, kind of. You know, and you think, yeah, I know that state. When I, uh, you know, or the, or the, or the, you know, the anxiety, these beautiful creatures, these impala, these, these buck that are gorgeous, but they're, they're always alert and a bit anxious and they run so quickly. But we're seeing nature, getting to know, and then the crocodile. Oh, let's cross the stream. <laughs> the crocodile, it's over there, it's 50. They go underwater, you know. <sighs> the crocodile lurking. They tell us and come, oh, they're killing machines. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, we did not have trouble, you know, believe me, you didn't have trouble nodding off on the walk. We're so alert, so, because exploring nature. When we're contemplating, we're walking through the game park, walking through our, our nature. Be interested. When there's desire, oh, it's pulling at me. Look at that. It's telling us, you know, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. Be interested. And notice the difference between it's me wanting and me not liking and this is no good to it becomes dhamma. It becomes something, part of nature to be investigated. Hmm. or the bubbling nature, hot nature of aversion, being disturbed. Why can't people just be more quiet? Being disturbed by our pains, disturbed by life, just wanting to build a wall, rather than, oh gosh, I'm hopeless, you know, everyone has Buddha nature, but the door's closed on me. And, but, you know, to see that, notice how we're contracted in, then we're possessed, but in a moment, ah, it's dhamma, it's aversion, or it's heaviness, or even if you don't have to have a special name, doesn't matter if you can't even name it, it's just that. Hmm. Then something that we were identifying with, it was me, as Tanis was saying last night, it's becoming an object of reflection. We realize it's actually something moving through the heart. This activity this sort of meditation is called vipassana. Pasana means to see, vi, see into the nature of things. But, but how do I know when to do? You know, you talk about samatha or calming meditation and the vipassana, but you know, how, how do I really know when to, when to do that? Right there, we can begin to get to notice that doubt that's come up. A question. It's a good question, and I'll talk about that question, but already we can, we can notice the doubt. If we're busy trying to find an answer, thoughts in search of an answer, thoughts in search of an answer, and we get this person's answer and that person's exact answer, and not really realizing we're entangled in doubt, then we're looking for the final answer. 
And any answer we get as a thought will be there, and then it will dissolve. No, but I'll write it down, then it won't dissolve. There, yeah, it's on the page there. Then when our eyes close, it's dissolved. Every thought, it can be useful, but it still is impermanent. When we're possessed by doubt, we somehow think one thought's going to solve everything. Not realizing the nature of thought is that it's impermanent. It's there and then dissolves. When we can recognize doubt, we can still use thought. It's very helpful to inquire, to understand. Thought can guide attention. But if we somehow imagine some answer, we'll solve it all. Then we're imprisoned. Then we're in debt because we're always looking to the thought. Am I doing all right? Oh, oh good, good. Oh, I'm not doing all right. Oh, dear. Someone praises us. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Kitties are a fantastic dog. Oh, <sighs> hadn't been a waste of time when someone else is nodding off and then, oh, God, I don't know. I've just heard it all before. It's just, oh, uh, getting excited, not excited, but noticing a thought as what it is, just a thought. Now, to do this sort of inquiry, I know I'm way out of date, but when I went into science back in high school, you know, you, you would, you would, they'd give you an apology and this and that, a microscope and a, well, I forget what you call those glass rectangles. Uh, and then you put a drop of water on the slide. Then you focus on it, and you could see inside the water all that stuff. Wow. But if you've you got to focus, you know, your eyes kind of moving all over the place, you get a distorted sense of what's there. Just like if a camera is not steady, we get a distorted sense. The samatha, the, the, the steadying practice, we're cultivating a true relationship. We're learning to develop, sharpen, the instrument of consciousness. Cultivating, people think we're running away from the world, we're meeting the world. Learning how to cultivate relationship with body, with sensation, with feeling, with awareness, in moments. Learning to actually be with, oh, I'm walking now. Breathing, eating. And the first blessing of that is it allows us to be present for our life. Then, as we learn how to enjoy that and realize that if we're always in a fever to be somewhere else, we, we don't know ease. So yes, there is a blessing of learning in little ways to be able to be at ease with simplicity. The ease of listening, embodiment, breathing. But the additional blessing, which is so important, is then when we are more rooted or grounded in true contact, not just imaginary contact, we are with how it is. Then, then it's possible, to an extent, if we're steady, to be able, like focusing that microscope, we're then able to see clearly. Ah, 
sensation is like this. Dhamma is like this. The, the Dhamma, the nature of a body is like this. Feeling good, not feeling good, wanting, not wanting. So samatha, vipassana go together. They're all part of one mind. Samatha steadies, relaxes, gathers, refreshes. And then when we put a little more emphasis into exploring, we see into the nature of things. Ajahn Chah, you know, they're not different. Oh, make up your mind, you're doing samatha, vipassana. There's whole traditions called vipassana, and that's the real thing. Other traditions called the samatha, that's the real thing. In his guttural, kind of earthy way, Ajahn Chah says, like a log. You pick up samatha's one end of the log, vipassana, you pick up one end of the log, you're going to get the other end too. Or he said, it's like a knife. A knife has a the back edge of the blade is thicker so that it can be sharpened. The pointed edge that cuts through is like vipassana. The back firm edge, which gives strength, is like samatha. Or the candle, body of the candle is like samatha. The wick and the flame is like vipassana, which illumines. But you need, you need the steadiness, the power of the, of the candle. This secret a relationship between samatha and, pa- and, and samatha means calming, steadying, vipassana means insight. The, the pairing of the two working together is already, forgive me if this sounds too complicated, if it doesn't make sense, just let it go. If it is useful, then, then use it because we don't have to understand everything at one time. But the pairing is already hidden within the jhana factors that we've taught. Remember the first one, vitaka, means bringing the mind, bringing the mind back here. That's the samatha element. It steadies the mind. I'm walking. Mm, Walking. But walking steadies the mind. Vichara, the second quality, means to feel out. Explore, receive. That's the vipassana aspect. Already, even, even when you're doing the classical samatha meditation, calming meditation, you need an element of wisdom in there. The two go together. So the Buddha described it as uh, they work in tandem like two oxen pulling a plow. They work together. <coughs> So we don't throw out all our practice that we've been doing these first few days. We still come back to here and now, still use the mind to guide us back to this moment. Then receive the moment. Then practice being with sitting, being with walking, being with resting, being with eating. cultivating ease to the best of our ability. But then noticing if something's obstructing us, noticing if something is pulling at us. 
And then, and then, then with that same, rather than seeing that as just a distraction, we can also make the object of our meditation. Oh, what is that? If there's desire, aversion, doubt, hmm, what is that? Then that, so Vipassana is wide open. We can be interested in that. Hmm. And one moment of being with, with desire and actually inquiring into it, already it's starting to be transformed. As Tanisra said last night, that which knows desire is not desire. And a moment of being patient with desire. Oh gosh, I really want to be home. And I miss the Oscars. I can't believe it. <laughs> can't believe I did that. <laughs> Want to be home. In a moment of bearing that and listening to that, already it's being transmuted into dispassion. To hold desire like that takes a quality of its opposite. Same with aversion. Oh gosh, I just can't stand this. Oh, it's just eyeball to eyeball stuff is just too much. Like, but a moment of bearing it, breathing with it, feeling that pushing, prickly. A moment of that already starts to access compassion, that which can suffer with, that which can hear, listen to suffering. Our capacity, our capacity is deepening. Capacity to be real, realistic. That was one definition of meditation that one master said, that we're cultivating the capacity to be realistic to be with. So then, so we don't need to feel ashamed. When these things come, they're, they're our teachers. And when we're looking at, see if we can keep it in the body, keep it connected to the body, rather than just getting spun off, and then we lose touch with the present moment when we're desiring, or averse, or heavy, or doubting. What's happening now? Look at the tendency to get totally possessed by it, into it, totally lost into it. Then we can ask the question, how does it feel? Is it changing? We start to see it as a visitor, something that's moving through consciousness. We can breathe with it. And then we have moments where we notice, ah, there's no desire. I'm not wanting to be somewhere else. I'm not averse right now. Okay, that's painful. But I'm not hating the pain. I'm not adding the second arrow. Okay, it's an arrow. It's definitely aching. But realizing that it is just what it is. Notice the, a moment of the freedom of that. So for some of us, if there's not many hindrances or things going on, deepen our calm. Keep enjoying learning how to be at ease with sitting, standing, walking, lying down. And the Buddha encouraged us, we're with the breathing, with the moments. He encouraged us to train ourselves little by little to allow the attention to expand so that we 
are the whole body is sensitive. So that our steadiness is grounded. It's more stable that way, grounded in the whole body. As we're doing that, then we can also keep Vipassana alive, not just desperately hold on to the peace, but just noticing how the peace has arisen. Noticing if it's vibrating, noticing the changing nature of the state, noticing how it changes when we get up, or if someone coughs or moves. And noticing that, if there's aversion or if there's not aversion. But how we begin to allow the calming practice, if we're, if we're experiencing a lot of calm, to begin to move into inquiry, is to at least notice that everything's changing. The sound of my voice comes and goes. An in-breath is there and then it becomes an out-breath. thoughts that we're having, shifting and changing. So now we're beginning to not only use our practice to learn how to enjoy things in a way that doesn't exploit the earth or anyone else, learning to be as easeful as we can with the simplicity of ordinariness, We're also using our practice as a light to illumine. We can illumine worry, illumine desire. And what's very important is that we start to at least begin to question automatically believing this stuff. Because when we automatically believe our desires, then we really are a slave. We have to go over there, automatically believe our aversion. Oh, got to get away from that. Automatically believe our doubts. Then we're just tangled up. Our Thai master, Ajahn Chah, said a good practice to help us reflect on these things is just say, not certain. In Thai, I love it in Thai, my nag. My means not, nah, it's not sure, not certain. When we're, i got to get out of here, I can't take another second, I'm dying. My nah, not certain. And we look again, rather than being so much me, it becomes, ah, we're looking again. I've really got to have another helping to get me through the day. My net, just to not judge it, but just to look fresh, just in case our vision's being clouded. So we're starting to illumine our moments with calm and investigation. 